0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 4, and we're going to be in verse 1 tonight. Uh, We are continuing to study the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And uh, the name of our series as we're doing that is Our Story Begins. And I know I've said this a lot, but I'm going to keep saying it. It's really important for us to know. Uh, The Bible is first and foremost God's story. However, because of the kind intention of his will, God has included us in his story. And so if these first few chapters of Genesis, if they really tell us the origin of our world and all that inhabits it, then we see from that that the superficial boundaries that we sometimes put up between people are not anchored in reality ultimately if God created Adam and Eve and if from them all the families of the earth derive their origin then my story is also your story and your story is my story and we are all swept up in the big story of which King Jesus is Lord over so uh we're thankful for all of that, and the truth that we've been seeing through this, tying uh, what the Bible says about how everything got started to the fact that this is—you know—everybody's looking for for meaning in, in in several big life questions. Where did we come from? What are we supposed to do? Where are we headed? And we see that the human race shares uh, this this story that the Bible lays out, uh, and we're we're seeing that right up close with with a magnifying glass as we go through these chapters of Genesis. So. In the first three chapters, we have seen that God created mankind to be his image bearers uh, and stewards of the world he made. And even though they were given the perfect setup by our perfect creator, we were not satisfied. We were tempted by the idea that we could be equal with God by knowing good and evil, and in so doing, even rule over ourselves. This, of course, led to the death and destruction that God promised it would. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to see more of how humanity devolves quickly when sin is allowed to rule us and how God responds. So like I said, we're in Genesis 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 15 together. It's roughly half the chapter, okay? Genesis 4, chapter 1. Sorry, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. Now, the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain... And for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you, will, your countenance, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you've driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Praise God for his word. We're going to jump back to the beginning there and start uh, in verses one through five and, and go right through this uh, bit by bit, see what the Lord has for us. So, first thing, verse one, it says, Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve. And I just wanted to share with you guys that one of my short term goals is to convince Natalie that we should only refer to marital intimacy as relations because uh, it's biblical. Actually, I just think it's funny. So, I'll keep you guys posted on how that goes. I'm just you know, going to keep working that language in there and see if it sticks. Um, Many have postulated that the reason for God regarding Abel's offering, basically accepting it, uh, but not Cain's, was because the blood of an animal is required for sacrifice. I've heard that taught many places. There are even uh, commentaries and theologians that have said that. And this is a possibility, but we are not told from the text that this was an offering for the atonement of sin, which... Does require blood, according to Leviticus 17, verse 11. But we see in Leviticus 2 that grain offerings are acceptable in order uh, to thank God for his provision. And nothing in this text tells us that what Cain and Abel were doing here was bringing an offering for the atonement of sin. Now, this account is, of course, long before uh, the regulations in Leviticus were given to Israel, but we still see God's mind about it through them that it was acceptable then to bring a grain offering. And so, I'm not sure that sometimes it's it's just said as a, like a matter of fact that well uh, I've heard people say Cain should have traded Abel for an animal and then brought that to sacrifice because you know you got to have blood for that but that's for an, that's for an atonement sacrifice this could have been a uh, Thanksgiving offering this could have just been them recognizing God's goodness in bringing an offering that the text doesn't say so we shouldn't assume that so that. If that's not the case, and that does, that's, that'd be an easy answer and we could move on. We don't have to work any harder. However, uh, we should ask, then, then what was it? If it wasn't a matter of the fact that there needed to be blood for this sacrifice, for the atonement of sin, what was it? Was, was God just feeling barbecue that day as opposed to salad? And so he you know, took Abel's sacrifice and disregarded Cain's. Was he just playing favorites here? What, what's happening in this text? What do we see here? I believe the key here is in verse 4. Look at that again with me, if you would. Verse 4, it says, Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. See, there's no mention here of the amount of each offering. So it's not that Cain just brought a half a carrot and uh, Abel brought this this large animal. It's it's not an amount issue, but the heart behind Abel's giving is very clear from what we're told in verse 4. The firstlings uh, mentioned there means it was the best of his flock, the first ones that came, the best, the cleanest, the purest. And the fat portions, those were the prized part of the animal, the most expensive, the most valuable. Abel gave God nothing less than his best, the best he had to give. And this really is the only discernible difference between his offering and Cain's offering in the text. Cain's offering is kind of mentioned in a generic way. It's said very specifically that Abel brought the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. So this was the very best. Now, some of you might be thinking, and it's a fair question. I hope you are as you're processing through this. Because you see this not only here, but in other places throughout the scriptures. Why is God so picky about offerings? Is this... Because God is some kind of egomaniac? Is this that God is uh, stingy? Is this God trying to prove something? What, what is the deal? Why, is, why would God regard Abel's offering and not Cain's? Why does it matter so much to him that the best is brought? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you were thinking through that. Here's why. Because half-hearted offerings both reveal and contribute, That's important. They reveal, but they also contribute to a half-hearted view of God. Half-hearted offerings are half-hearted worship, and this will lead to distraction and to destruction for us. God is not requiring anything in an offering, or in, in, in particular, the best of what we have to bring, because he needs that. Is that right or wrong? He's not going to actually eat the fat of this animal. He's not going to eat the grain. It doesn't matter to him. There's no taste involved. So what is, what is the deal there? He's dealing with our hearts. God didn't need their offerings. He, God requires the first and best from his people because, according to Jesus, your treasure is where your heart is. And that's, that's Jesus' teaching. Jesus came and illuminated even more of why God does what he does and how he does does what he does according to the book of Hebrews and uh, Colossians. This is the, the, the clearest image we have of what God's doing in any given situation. So I'm going I'm to submit this to you. God is really after our hearts. And when we give him the first and the best as an act of obedience and worship, it reminds us of his place as the only one worthy to receive those things. Now, I want to flip this around, and I want to ask you, friends, what does it functionally say if we are willing to keep the first and best of what we make or what we have for ourselves? We make a functional declaration in our willingness to keep the first and best for ourselves. What are are we really saying with that action? The answer to that is what we're functionally saying is that we are first and best, and this is the foul and poisonous weed of pride. God is continually working to pull out roots and all from the soil of our hearts. And so even in what he requires of us, See, people are like, oh, why does God need this? Why does God need that? Friend, you've got to always go back and understand that God has an intention behind all that he's doing, and he's revealed in his word that all his intentions are for our good. Well, I don't understand how. Well, sometimes you're just going to have to, by faith, believe by what you know of God's character, what you've seen and what's been revealed, if all you have is the cross of Christ to understand he is good and he is for my good and he is working a magnificent plan of redemption. And, and if we can take that kind of at the cosmic level, translate it down to what you're going through in this individual moment, you'll see and you'll have faith to, to walk forward and trust him even when maybe all the pieces of the puzzle don't quite line up for you yet. And that's the challenge of faith. That's, that's part of what the Christian life looks like. God is doing something in what he requires. And it's, it's more about what it does for our hearts and what it, it functionally declares to the world around us, but also to ourselves. Each time we come and give something, uh, whether it's the best or it's just kind of what we had left over, and and this this very fact, this this is a principle that kind of crops up here in Genesis four, but is repeated often throughout the scriptures. This principle of giving God the best that we have. It, it's part of why we encourage, especially this comes up most often if Natalie and I are uh, walking with a couple through uh, like a premarital process where they're just starting to come bring their life together, try to melt uh, two lives into one. They got to f- figure out a budget and all that type of stuff. That's one of the questions we're talking about. And uh, one of the things we'll encourage them to do is on their budget to have a place at the top, an actual physical place to write in how and what it's going to look like for them to be generous. You know, in in light of the rest of their financial picture. And uh, it, it needs to be a real tangible thing in our hearts and in, in our practice that the first and the best goes to God. And I'm just assuming that all of you have a budget because all of you know that we're merely stewards of God's money and you want to manage his resources well. So I'm just assuming everybody's got their budget together and that's written out and thought through and all of that. I didn't expect an amen there, but... Uh, And I I get it, right? Some of you, I'm sure, are thinking right now, here we go, right? Because you don't like it when churches or pastors talk about your money. But first of all, uh, the Bible teaches that you don't have any money. Romans 2 says even your body should be laid on the altar as a living sacrifice. So all we are and thus all we have belongs to God anyways. Now that is a good place to say amen if you'd like to. Great. Great. Uh, so what you're going to have to do then, if you don't like it when this comes up, you're going to have to take it up with God because this is his word, and he's the one that brings up sacrificial, generous giving all the time. It's, it's not me. I'm just reading you the text and dealing with what's here, okay? Uh, Jesus talked more about money than he did about salvation. So I would just encourage you, if, honestly, I'm kind of joking, but I'm really not. Like if, if something rises up in you and you're frustrated when you hear, the, the church in general or pastors in particular talk about money in any given way, uh, fashion or form. I, I would seriously suggest that you go to the Lord about that and talk to him about it because that reveals a sinful attitude. There's something in there. And you're partially justified to some degree. Many of you have, have like firsthand experience with charlatans and, and hucksters that uh, are fleecing people and trying to uh, use the gospel in a, a perverted form of the gospel to get money from people, and that's wretched, and Jesus is going to deal severely with those people if they don't repent. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not looking forward to that, but uh, I, I do rest in that, that vengeance is the Lord's and he will repay. But uh, I, if you're going to go talk to the Lord about your frustration with uh, the church and money, I, I would just humbly suggest that you don't go at him the way Cain went at him in these scriptures because that did not go well for him, and most of the time it's not going to go well for anybody else. Uh, I would come at that humbly assuming there may be something to be corrected in you rather than maybe God should have left some verses out that frustrate you, right? Okay, good. Glad you agree. We also see here in what Abel's doing. We see preparation and intentionality in Abel's offering. We're talking about why God, do you remember what we're doing? We're talking about why God had regard for Abel's offering and not Cain's. That's point. If you're going to read this text, you should want to know that. Uh, you should care about what was in the mind and heart of God in this instance. I don't want to be in Cain's position uh, in any part of it, but especially this part where I'm bringing something to the Lord, and, and I'm probably convinced in my own mind that this is good or sufficient or what God wants, and to find myself in a place where he's, doesn't have regard for it, where he does not receive it because it's not brought in the right way. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to be in that spot. So I'm thankful these scriptures are here and that we're learning today by the power of God's spirit. So Abel, there was in his offering, there was preparation and intentionality. How do I see that? He had to separate out those, those best portions to present to the Lord. Remember he said he brought the fat. Okay, So that meant there was some butcher stuff happening and he had to prepare that. Uh, he didn't just flop a sheep or a goat down on the altar and say, you know, there, God, I gave something, you know, and move on. There was a lot of work that went into it, and there was, there was intentionality and preparation. And I think this brings up something that we should discuss as, as the people of God in our current context, okay? Because, and I mean in a time perspective, because of the practicalities of modern life and the way we deal with currency, many of us now give towards the mission of the gospel digitally. Okay, and I think that's a good thing. I think that can be a good thing. We often now don't physically bring an offering to a designated place, as was the case here in Genesis 4 and even up through much of the New Testament. Uh, if you remember, there was a place at the temple where people were bringing offerings and Jesus was watching what everyone was doing. There was a place and a time designated for that. Uh, that's not what it looks like oftentimes today, and that's okay. The Bible leaves room for the church to function in the time and place where it finds itself, uh, you know, within reason. We don't do what the Bible forbids, just under the flag of missional, you know, contextualization. That doesn't work. But what we need to do is be careful that we don't go the way of Cain unintentionally. I would encourage that even if you uh, have set up to give automatically, Or if you give online some other way, I would encourage you that you take time to pray over that offering and commit it to the Lord with purpose and with intentionality. Here's why giving is a special form of worship, and it connects your heart to God in a way that nothing else does. And I know that's a big statement, but I'm gonna bring it back around to what Jesus taught. This This isn't about what I think about it. Jesus said, Where your treasure is, your heart is also. He makes this really big statement and what he's saying is your heart is connected to your, your, your passions and, and what is important to you is connected to the resources that God has entrusted to you. One of the quickest ways we're going to get sideways with the Lord and uh, in life is to make those resources God gave us to steward into a god themselves something we have a higher affection for than the god that gave them to us and that happens that's why Jesus warned about it so often that's why he said pay attention watch yourself because where your treasure is your heart is and so he didn't say that about singing uh, or other forms of worship and and giving in this way the way Cain and Abel were and in in the way that we do uh, out of the resources that the lord has entrusted to us is a a special uh, and intense form of worship. And here's, here's why I'm saying to you, we need to be careful about... I'm not saying we have to go back to physical giving. I'm not, definitely not saying you need to go trade your dollars uh, for a goat and bring the fat in here and the best portions of the firstlings, right? That's definitely not the case. Um, that wouldn't help us propel the gospel forward, which is the point of what we're doing and why we're giving. But God doesn't want to be in a group with your mortgage company and Duke Energy where you just send your bill in and check it off of a list. That's not what's happening. That's not why God has commanded us to be generous. That's not the point. It's not a bill. God desires an intimate connection with you as you make the intentional choice to obey him and worship him with the resources he has entrusted to you. And so all I'm saying to you is today, there was... Can we say it this way? It was a lot easier to be intentional when you went out and picked the best firstling of the flock and you took it and you had to relieve it of its blood and you had to cut it open and you had to take the best parts and make sure you were careful and take that to the Lord. It was was, You couldn't avoid intentionality in that process. It's very easy for us, friends, to avoid intentional worshipful giving when we link our bank account one time to the giving deal and then it's done and it just does it. I'm just saying to you, Husbands and wives or if you're somebody that is single, uh, if it's a recurring thing, set a reminder on your phone that, the, okay, yeah, biweekly or whenever it happens, that, uh, yeah, I am going to be sending something off for the, for the furthering of the gospel. Stop and pray over that and commit that to the Lord and have a moment of worship as you do that. Intentionality, that's what I'm talking about. Preparation, make it, make it a part of how you worship God because it is part of what he has required from us as worship. Okay? Praise the Lord. Uh, Ephesians 4 says we should work with generosity as a primary motive. Now we need to say that providing for the need of our household is also biblical, so we don't want to get that out of balance, but the question is what motive is first place in your heart and mind? That's the language you see of what Abel brought here that was regarded by God. Remember we had two offerings. One God said yes, one God said no. That, That Peaks my interest. I want to understand what's happening there. What is first place in your heart and mind? Because if what we're doing is chucking God some of the leftovers or some bit of penance that relieves our guilt, we are going to find ourselves in the position of Cain. It will do no good. And you probably will never hear a pastor say this again, but if that's the position you're in, your in, your in and Love City is the place that you would normally be worshiping with your giving, I would say don't give until you can slow down, get cheerful about it, because God loves a cheerful giver, and be intentional about it. Uh, I, don't, I don't really want to be working with something that God wouldn't regard, to be honest with you. So let's get our hearts right about it, right? Amen. Amen. I just said this, but God loves a cheerful giver, and my, friend, my question to you, dear friend, is do you genuinely experience joy when you give? God wants giving to be a source of joy and a powerful as well as a frequent reminder of his importance and lordship in your life. Have you, have you connected the dot of what I'm saying yet? That giving is one of the ways we are most vibrantly reminded who is first place in our life. Who is Lord? Because it gets, it's, it's, it's easier to say with our lips oh yeah, Jesus is king, than it is for us to crack out that wallet and say Jesus is king with our giving. You understand what I'm saying? It's a, it should be a frequent and a powerful reminder that really, in a, in a litmus test kind of way, shows us the content of our heart. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If our giving becomes just a dead or mechanical action, then we have a form of godliness, but we are missing the power and the beauty that God intends for us to experience when we are radically and intentionally generous. God doesn't want a mechanical transaction with you. He wants it to be beautiful and intimate and joy-filled. He wants it to be worship. And if that's the way he wants it, then that's the way we should bring it. Right? Amen. I just want to be clear about what I'm saying. I believe this text speaks to how we give, not what we give. So this is not me saying you should give more. This is not me twisting arms, hoping to increase offering amounts. Uh, I don't do that as a matter of principle. Now, maybe you should give more, but that is between you and Jesus. And I'm not going to have a conversation with you about it. That's not my problem. It matters to God how we give. And I think if you need more evidence for that, the widow in Luke 21 giving uh, two copper coins next to all the rich guys coming up with bags full of gold, the, the, the widow puts in two copper coins and she's the one that gets a standing O from the master. I think that shows the heart of God on the matter, right? That's what the Lord is looking for. It matters much more to God how we give than what we give. Um... Now, sometimes what we give will be reflective of how we give and what's going on in our heart. Obviously, you understand that that's connected. But the major point here is intentionality and worshipfulness in giving. There was a preparation in what Abel did. And he brought something that God regarded it was pleasing to him. We had someone else that brought an offering. And God said, no, I don't want that. Yikes, right? Don't want to be in that spot. And it's, it's, that's not just true of giving of financial resources, that's true in all of what we do, whether it's service, uh, whether it's uh, whatever part of w- what we're doing to serve in God's kingdom. There should be this sense of intentionality and and preparation and joy in doing that. We, we have to flip the thinking that sometimes grabs a hold of our, our mind that, you know, this is... This is some task I need to do or perform uh, because God said so. Instead, seeing it as a beautiful privilege afforded to me by grace. uh, That the very fact that I'm not just a dead person wandering around in darkness and and enslaved to sin, and the fact that I've been brought into uh, the glorious light of God's kingdom and given eternal life, and now I can give and serve and understand what life and eternity is really about. It's a privilege. Anything we're allowed to do for God is a, is a beautiful privilege, something that is only allowed and afforded to us by grace alone. And so this is, this, and we need this kind of thinking constantly. And this is why what we say here is that uh, generosity should be sacrificial but also frequent, right? And that's going to look different for all kinds of different people. Um, and don't let the what of what you're able to give make you think that's what's going to have God regard you as he did Cain. God was looking at the way they brought it, what was going on in their heart. It wasn't the what so much. Okay? I think that's important. I know that's important. Uh, Just in talking about this, I think this is a good time to let you guys know that while I was studying these scriptures, I really felt led that I should buy a large yacht and I want to cruise that up and down the Ohio River to preach the gospel, and God told me to tell you to give towards it. So we'll be doing that at the end of the service, okay? Just kidding. That won't be happening. Not here anyways. It's happening some places. God help those poor sheep, uh, and may he rescue them from wolves. Amen. All right, verses 6 through 8. Here we go. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. This is is eye-opening. Instead of humbly asking God, How he could present a more acceptable offering and letting God teach him that what's in his heart is more important than what's in his hands, instead of doing that, Cain instantly becomes angry. And because this anger culminates in the murder of his brother, we know that this was a specific and particularly vile species of anger. It's called jealousy. Instead of examining himself and discovering the reason God regarded Abel's offering, Cain just becomes jealous. And we may think that jealousy is something we should avoid. Maybe, you know, I know it doesn't look good on me or others, but maybe we don't see it as big of a deal as other sins. But we see here that jealousy unchecked led to the first murder ever committed. It's a big deal. In Matthew 5.21, Jesus teaches that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Boy, Jesus came and messed some stuff up, didn't he? Because the Old Testament, we had it fine. It was tooth for a tooth, eye for an eye. You hit me, I hit you. You kill somebody I love, I'm going to kill somebody you love. See, I would have flourished under that system. That would have that been great for me. I understand that. That makes perfect sense. But Jesus came and said stuff like, not only can you not murder people, you cannot harbor hate in your heart towards them or you will be guilty of murder. Whoo! <laughs> just, just for a second to backtrack to the giving part, people like to say, well, it doesn't talk about tithing in the New Testament. I, I get that. That's part of why we don't use that language a lot here. But, but, but let me ask you, what area did Jesus come and comment on about what we understood about the Old Testament where things got easier? <laughs> he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy as well. What? That's a tall order. Grace doesn't make anything easier for us. It just even more so reveals the fact that we're going to need God's help to do any of it because the bar is raised in in almost an immeasurable amount when Jesus shows up and starts talking, (laughs) right? The The disciples said, Jesus taught on divorce. He said, well, back in the day, Moses said we could just give her a certificate and, and send her off. And, and Jesus says, hold on. Back in Genesis, it says that God brought them two together and made them one flesh. Don't, don't let men separate what God has brought together. And the disciples, do you remember their response? They said, Whoo, Lord, that's a tough teaching. Who wants to get married then? That was, that was their summary of the whole thing. So Jesus came and rocked the boat in a lot of ways. And this is one of them, Okay. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Jealousy is a form of hatred that is born out of insecurity. Cain misinterpreted God's regard for Abel as an outright rejection of him. We see that God is still trying to talk to Cain uh, even after the murder, right? If, If you keep reading here, God's still trying to deal with Cain, still trying to pull out of him something that looks like repentance, so God wasn't rejecting him in the way he dealt with those offerings. He was trying to teach him something. But Cain, instead of receiving that from the Lord and exploring what it was God was trying to teach him, instead he, he, he just goes straight to anger and jealousy. And the object of that, he may have had some frustration at God, but he couldn't do a whole lot about that, right? Like you get in a boxing match with God, you lose. It's just, that, that's, that's an easy one. But he starts to look around who else he can be angry at and, and who's there? Abel who God had just regarded and he had just gotten what Cain wanted but didn't get. So like a bite from a deadly snake, the poison of jealousy quickly spread through Cain's system, blinding him to the truth and causing him to hate his brother who had received the response from God that he wanted. My friends, we need to see jealousy for the deadly sin that it is. Let me ask you this. How many of you... If you were hiking, if you go just out east of here a few hours, you hit the uh, base of the Appalachians. If you were hiking out east of here and and you found a timber rattler right there across the the trail, you know, those are the big ones, eastern diamondbacks. If you found a timber rattlesnake, how many of you would grab it, swing it around, play with it, you know, whoo, hey, buddy, drape it over your shoulders and and walk the rest of the trail there that day, just, you know, you got the timber rattler now there for company. How many of you, that's your response when you see him coiled up there next to the trail, you know, hissing at you and... Shaking that tail. And is that any, what anybody's doing here? I'll give you a chance right now. Go ahead and say it. Yeah, I'm picking up the snake and we're going to hang out. Okay, uh, that's awesome. I was really hoping to not have to have that counseling session after service. If somebody said, yeah, yeah, yeah that's what I'd do. Okay, all right, we're going to help you. Yeah, right? So nobody, I hope, would, would do that. That would be insane. But this is what we do when we treat jealousy like just a part of being human. And we don't seek God's help to put it to death in all of its sneaky forms. See, some of us, with jealousy, we are picking it up. We're playing with it. We're kind of letting it hang out because we don't see the danger. The difference is the, the rattlesnake has a rattle, and it, its head is shaped in a kind of a diamond way, and it's got those eyes, and, and it's, it looks dangerous. We see it. We get it. But sometimes with jealousy, it's, it's more subtle. Sometimes we let that hang out longer than it should, and then it, it grabs a, a root in our heart, and it begins to do things that lead to our destruction. Uh, We can't let that happen. Now, some might say, and and we should talk about this, some might say, well, God is jealous, why can't I be? Right? He's conforming us into the image of his son. Jesus is the expressed image of God himself. And so if we're trying to be like Jesus, who is like God, and God is jealous, well, then why can't I be jealous? Well, first of all, we need to understand God's jealousy is for his people and against every idol and lie that pulls them away from his good intentions for them. God's jealousy is for his people, uh, and it's a protective jealousy, and it's against all falsities that would try to pull them away from what they were made for, which is relationship uh, with him. God is not jealous because he is insecure or feeling salty about some other God you know, kind of encroaching upon his territory. His jealousy flows out of his love. He is perfect and we are not. And so his jealousy is righteous where ours is not. That is why God is described throughout the scriptures as jealous. And that's something I'm very thankful for. I'm thankful that he's jealous for me. I'm thankful that if I'm foolish enough to uh, play with the snake or believe the lie or whatever that really looks like and I'm toddling into danger like a fool... I'm thankful he gets upset about that. I'm thankful that he's upset at the source of deception and danger in the way he dealt with the the serpent, uh, you know, last chapter when we were talking about that. And I'm glad that uh, his love is is intense enough for me that that matters to him. I'm glad God is angry against sin. My sin. Because my sin is going to lead to destruction and pull me away from the best possible destiny I have, which is to be connected to the God that made me. And so his jealousy flows out of his love. Of that we can be And for that, we can be very thankful. Now, I'm not trying to sound like I think the internet is the devil this week. I know I said something about giving digitally, and we need to be careful about that. I stand by everything I said. Uh, Not that we shouldn't. You know, I think some people, that would be a a good way to even maybe, you know, sometimes people just forget or whatever. So it's a good way to increase faithfulness, but we need to also be intentional. However, I want to say one way that jealousy is made worse in our day, I believe, is through social media. So let's talk about that. Let's say it's maybe the biggest elephant in the room as it pertains to jealousy in 2018 in the West for sure. Basically everywhere with an internet connection. So what do we have? Because of social media, because of what the platform that it affords, the ability for everyone to post, everyone to see, we've got people wishing they had other people's kids, other people's spouse, uh, a spouse at all. Other people's job, other people's car, their house, their vacation. Ooh. We got people on social media posting the very best corners of their life with no view into the rest of the room. And it creates this sinful sense of competition and discontentment that unchecked will destroy people's lives. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great gain because it frees you from the wretched prison of comparison. And friends, the gospel is the only thing really that's going to turn us loose from this. It is only jealousy, I said, is a form of hatred born of insecurity. Our insecurities are played upon by much in our culture. It's not just social media. It's also marketing. Uh, Sometimes people make money off you by being able to anticipate the ways you are insecure and then offer you a product to fix that. You understand this all the time. This is constant. And so there are some that profit greatly by you staying insecure, and so they do all they can to make sure you do. The gospel, on the other hand, sets you free from that. You're not, you don't have to compare yourself to uh, the, the image or the status or the uh, sense of power, whatever it is that's being held up that you should be trying to aspire to. What the gospel does is tells you that because Jesus was willing to do what he did, and that was for you, that he saw all of your frailty, all of what you would do, both good and bad, and that he made a decision to lay his life down. We sung about that earlier, to lay his I mean, he took his life, to lay his life down so that you could be his, so that you could be rescued from darkness and brought to light so that you could be in relationship with him so that he could have you. The fact that he paid that price the tr- that truth of the gospel right there, if we believed it down to the very core of our being, it would, it would free us from the need to compare ourselves to the neighbor or the person on social media or the magazine or anything else. I would know that I am loved and that I have value and worth because Christ has declared it and his declaration rises far and above what anybody else has to say, be it a marketer, be it my own insecurities, my own inner monologue or, or somebody else. The gospel frees us, friends, from the jealousy and sense of competition that leads to a discontentment and leads to really what is a a sad and wretched existence. It is a prison to constantly be looking at your life and then looking at the lives of those around you, whether it be perceived or actual, and wishing you had what they had or could be what they are, not able to settle into this beautiful fact that you are you, God made you, and he's got a plan for you and he's doing something with you. And he loves you and he wants you. That is freedom from that rat race. And God wants us to walk in that freedom. That's why godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great gain. It doesn't mean we don't have ambition. It doesn't mean that we're not seeking to uh, do all every single ounce of what God has created us to do. That doesn't mean we just hit neutral and say, oh, well, I'm just trusting the Lord. No, no, no. There is, we, we, were, we were saved and, and, and we've been... Justified because God prepared good works beforehand for us to do. There is a job to do. There is something God has for you to accomplish. Uh, But what we need to do is focus our energy on seeking out by the power of the Spirit of God what God has set out for us to do instead of wishing we could do what God has set out for everyone else to do. This teaching reverberates all through the Scriptures, right? In talking about the body of Christ as a body with different parts and varying gifts, uh, and this, this is part of Cain's problem, right? Uh, they, they were at a church service. Basically, they were coming to bring offerings to the Lord. And really, part of what Cain's ticked off about is the way God regarded Abel. And that happens, Satan tries to use that in the house of God, in, among the people of God even. Uh, that somebody's, somebody's gifting and, and what God has made them to do means that this is the part they play in the body. Well, they they think that some other part gets more honor or they they just think they would like that better or whatever it is. And and then what Satan wants them to do is take the way of Cain and be upset at that person and, and lightweight, maybe under the radar, upset with God, that it's not going the way they wish it would. Contentment with godliness. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's freedom, friends. The opposite of that is an imprisonment. It's an enslavement to uh, what looks like a, a, just a, a dark, sad hamster wheel. Uh, I've heard Tim Keller say this on multiple occasions and in different ways. There, he probably has borrowed it from somewhere. I don't know. Uh, but uh, this, this is the idea. He says that if you knew everything God knows, you would pray for exactly what he's given you. I want you to think about that for a second because it's, it's it really will help us if we believe it. If you knew everything God knows, you would pray for exactly what he's given you. What does that mean? Well, that, <laughs> to embrace that takes, <laughs> takes a level of trust in God's power and God's goodness that to me looks like probably close to the, the height of Christian maturity. Because what you're saying in that is, Whatever my circumstance, no matter how much I like it or dislike it, no matter matter how much I wish it was different, if I knew everything God knows, I would pray for exactly what I have right now because that means I believe exactly what's going on right now. God is being faithful to his promise to work all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose, that God has not abandoned me, that God has not gone to sleep, God is not out of the picture. God is absolutely intimately involved with every detail of what's going on. He's working on the inside of me that he is he is allowing whatever things I don't like right now because God is not primarily concerned with my comfort but he's primarily concerned with conforming me into something better than I am which is the very image of Christ his son. God is about transforming me and moving me along this spectrum of sanctification unto this ultimate glorious end called glorification when I'm with him forever sin has been finally defeated and we get to just rejoice basking in his unveiled glory forever God is working a plan can you trust that will you trust that can you say right now I trust God to the degree that if I knew everything he knows I'd be praying for what I've got right this moment you have to run everything you're not happy about right now through that grid And I understand that some of it may not fit, right? It won't go. I get it. But at least, I think that at least sets for us a bar of thinking, of right thinking, biblical thinking, and what it looks like to really trust the Lord. God is good and God is powerful and he is working. I don't see it. I know. Sometimes we don't. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. Let's look at verses 9 through 12. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Okay. Okay. Let's start with verse 9. Whew. Uh, Cain got some of his sass mouth from his daddy. Do you remember a chapter ago when God comes to Adam and says, Adam, what's up? What happened? Everything has basically fallen apart. What, what, what we got going on here? Adam says, the woman you gave me offered me this thing to eat. And so... You see the blame shifting, but you also see this connotation in what he says. He doesn't just blame Eve. It's the woman you gave me, God, you gave me. Okay. Don't don't do that. Don't do that. And and some of that is here in what Cain says. He says, Where is Abel your brother? I did not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The connotation in that? Oh man, it feels bad to even say it. What he's saying is Aren't, aren't you supposed to be taking care of him? What, what, what are you asking me? Where is it? And Cain knows what he did, man. And this is the way he's talking to God. Do you see how stupid sin makes you? Do you see how p- blind pride can make you? That he will talk to God like this? It's the same stupidity that came upon our first parents as they ran to the trees to hide from God? What? What are you, what are you doing? Who are we dealing with here? This is, this is not some lesser deity. This, this is the God that created everything and he knows right so cain bro don't don't come at him like that that is a bad idea so he he throws it back in god's face am i my brother's keeper aren't you watching him and and here's you know that's kind of become a famous saying and that's that's a good point but so one thing we need to say is the sin the, the the degradation of of Cain's heart is very evident in the fact that this is his answer. Am I my brother's keeper? Because the harmony of the scriptures gives an answer to that in no uncertain terms. Here's the answer to the question, are you your brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, you are. Actually, yes. And how do we know that? Well, it's not just the fact that Cain and Abel were brothers biologically. See, again, Jesus comes and, and, and makes things even more intense, right? Because Jesus comes saying, uh, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And then some smart guy trying to figure out, Okay, what does that mean? How far does that go? What, what is this? How do I wiggle out of this one? Some smart guy says, Okay, so who's my neighbor? And then Jesus' answer is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So it goes from, Yeah. Cain, you should have been looking for your brother, Abel. Yes, you should have been looking out for him. Jesus comes and busts this thing wide open to the point where neighbor is now defined as this Samaritan that lives in no geographical closeness whatsoever to the guy that's in the ditch bleeding, but just happens to be there. Jesus says, who who was a good neighbor? The guy that showed up and did something. The guy that rushed to the need. The guy that brought love and sacrificed of his own resources in order to meet the needs of somebody else. Jesus basically blows to pieces every limitation we would try to put on the command to love. That's what he does with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Are you tracking with me? Yes, you are your brother's keeper. And that goes far beyond biology. We're to love and to care for every person that God brings across our path. Something else we see here. Cain's punishment is like Adam's but more severe. What does God say to him? Well, let's remember what he said to Adam, remember? So now now when you try to cultivate the earth, it's going to give you thorns and it's going to be, you're going to eat by the toil and the sweat of your brow. So now what was going to be a pleasure and a joy in working the ground is is now going to be really hard for you. That was was part of what God said to Adam. Well, what's he say to Cain? He says, now cursed, you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate it, it will no longer yield its strength to you. So not, not is it only going to be hard, now it's not going to work. You will not be able to work this ground and have it give you anything. This is part of Cain's punishment. Uh, moving on from that, you see that he says, it's not going to yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden and the perfection that was found there, the uninhibited access to God's presence. But we see here that Cain and Abel were still bringing offerings to the Lord, and so God had not abandoned them. There was still some degree of interaction. Now what's being said is, Cain, you're going to be a vagrant and a wanderer, and I'm casting you permanently and totally from my presence. He got it worse than Adam, but that's partially because I think God is very ticked off that Abel's dead okay? Uh, first murder here as a result of jealousy and, and, and out of a context of they were just supposed to be bringing an offering to the Lord. God's not happy here. And this punishment is pretty severe. And, and Cain says as much, right? So look at, let's look at verses 13 through 15. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you've driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I'll be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me Will kill me. So here's something interesting that I think we need to note. Cain laments greatly the punishment. He says, This punishment is too great to bear. You've you've cursed me from being able to cultivate the ground. I'm being cast from your presence, right? And I'm going to be a vagrant and a wanderer. Cain laments the punishment, but what's really strikingly missing here is there's no repentance for the sin. He's really tore up about the severity of this punishment. But you don't see him at, at, at any point in here acknowledge, yes, Lord, I've sinned. Forgive me. And this is not uncommon. There's many times we end up shaking our fists at the Lord for consequences in our lives when really the right response and what we, what we were looking for there was, God, please forgive me. You don't see that at all here. This is a perennial issue and problem. With the human heart, we seek to justify, we focus on the, the severity of the consequences as opposed to the way our consequences have affected others and uh, where it is we could be confessing and repenting of those things. Uh, I saw this, thankfully, I saw this in reverse um, just, just recently. It was, it was bedtime and my son Max is, is four and a half. Don't say four. Uh, he's four and a half and he will let you know that. So it's time for bed and we're doing teeth brushing. And so he gets underneath the, the cabinet there and there's a bottle of, like they have some kids mouthwash, but there's this bottle of adult mouthwash. And he was really fixated on that for some reason. Like it was th- that he really needed to try that. And I kind of was like, no, dude, we're not going to do that. And he's like, he says, uh, no, dad, mom, mom already let us do that. And he knows that typically... That'll get me to just kind of what... Okay, mom said, it's fine, fine, fine. Just do it. You know what I mean? So here, we'll have the crest, and it said alcohol-free on it, so I figure it's fine. And then I come in there, or or Lucy then comes in, my daughter. She's seven, and uh, she says, we've never had that. And he didn't catch it at first, so I let him finish brushing his teeth, and I said, hey, man, did you just lie to me? He's like, what, what? I said, you told me mom said you could have that mouthwash. Have you ever had that before? Did mom tell you you could have that? And And I saw... Once the realization hit him, his body language changed, little tears started to come in his eyes, and I wanted to know, was he upset that I was upset and what he thought might happen, or was he upset that he had lied to me? Was, was he sad about that? And so I said, did you lie to me? Yeah, I did. I said, how do you feel about the fact that you just lied to me? He said, I'm sad. I said, you're sad that you just lied to me? Yeah, I'm sad. I said, all right. Don't ever do that again. And when I tucked him in, I said, listen to me, man, trust is very important. I said, if you lie, people will not trust you for the rest of your life. Don't ever lie to dad again. He didn't need any more punishment because he actually was sad about his sin. He was was sad. The tears were there because he realized I lied to dad and that wasn't cool. I shouldn't do that anymore. That was punishment enough. We didn't see that with Cain. He just didn't like the punishment. There There was no remorse. There was no sense of a need for repentance. We need to check ourselves in that when we're in those situations, when God's dealing with us. Uh, the, the worst part of what God said here, yes, the ground's not going to give you any increase anymore. Uh, you're going to be a vagrant and a wanderer. But the, the very worst part is being removed from God's presence. He says, you're going you're to uh, move me away from, how does he say it? You're cursed from the ground. Uh, he says, my punishment is too great. Behold, you've driven me from this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. The, the, that is the very most severe part of Cain's punishment, being fully removed from God's presence and, and from the presence of his people. Cain's kicked out now from even the community of God's people there that were, that were responding to God, bringing God offerings. He's, he's now cut off from that. That is a, is a severe But obviously, if God did it, a needed punishment. Here's the reality. Because God is just, he could have killed Cain on the spot for Abel's death. That absolutely would have been a justified action. But here's what we need to see. And and, and we need to ask ourselves if we really believe this. This is true, but you may not believe it. To live out of God's presence was an even harsher punishment than for him to kill him on the spot. It made the point in an even more drastic way for God to say, actually, no, you're going to live and I'm going to put a sign on you that nobody kills you, but you're not going to be in my presence. Do we believe that a life lived outside of connection to and relationship with God is worse than death? Do we believe that? Do we see that that was the harshest part of this punishment or the harshest possible punishment? Do we see that death would have been preferable to being cast out of god's presence unable to fellowship with him friends we need to believe this we need to believe it because it will help us to prioritize our own lives but it will also it should push us towards evangelism and towards sharing the gospel with people because what i what i think we fail to believe oftentimes is that a life lived outside of relationship with the God that made us is the very worst possible existence you can have. I think for many of us, there is a a, a sick and twisted jealousy oftentimes looking at the lives of people that seem to be having a, a perennial party and everything's great and their life is full of wickedness or they are far from God, but because they can project this sense of fullness or wholeness, we end up jealous of people that are living the very worst possibility on the face of the planet, which is to be a human being made in the image of God, but to not be connected to the God that made us for one express purpose, and that's for him. Why are we able to walk by with no emotional impact whatsoever, hundreds or thousands of people a day that are dead men and dead women walking, that are living lives that is a hollow shell of what they were really created for? Why have we gotten so dull in our senses that we're okay with that? It's because sometimes we don't believe that the worst possible existence, that death is preferable to living without God. We need to ask God to help us to believe that. We need to ask God to show us in in deeper and in more vibrant ways why that's true. You might be hearing the premise. You might even be tempted to nod because I'm saying it forcefully, but it needs to be more than that. It needs to get down deep enough into your heart that it, it elicits action, that you're not just a hearer and a nodder, but you're a doer of the word, that you are seeking closeness to the Lord because it is what you were made for, and and you are then motivated to go out of that and to try to welcome others into the existence for which they were created, which is to be in relationship with the God that made them. Every other path is darkness and death and slavery. These are the terms the Bible uses to describe life outside of relationship with God. Our hearts should be broken over this. And friends, what is that gospel that we're going to share? What is is the the news that we should be taking out if we really do believe death is preferable to life without God? Well, the gospel is this, that, that really we are all Cain. This is the truth. We all have gone the way of Cain at one time or another. We struggle with anger, don't we? We struggle with hate. And we struggle with jealousy. We struggle with lying. We struggle with blame shifting. We struggle with not wanting to repent of sin. We would rather just forget it and nobody ever know about it. Keep it hidden in the darkness. We've all gone the way of Cain. We are all stricken with pride in various forms. But though we are all Cain, and though we are all deserved of the same sentence he was given, which is to be separated from God fully and completely... That is what each one of us deserves, just like Cain. That is true. However, however, we have a better Abel. We have a better Abel who offered not just the first and the fat of his flock, but he offered his own body as a sacrifice, whose blood also cries out from the ground, but not for our judgment, but for our forgiveness. Jesus didn't stay down when his brothers killed him, but he rose up victorious forever over sin and death on our behalf. We have to go and we have to be willing to say the bad news, that I'm Cain and you're Cain, and all of us have earned for ourselves the, the exact sentence Cain received. But each one of us has a brother that has stepped in. He's taken the punishment we deserve, and if we'll trust in that by faith, we can receive Righteousness and relationship, redemption, and hope through Christ and through Him alone. That is the news we have to share. The, the question is are we motivated to do it? Do we believe what the Bible teaches here? Do we believe that the very harshest form of God's judgment is not what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Everybody's freaked out by Sodom and Gomorrah. That is tiddlywinks, man, compared to Romans 1 around verse 24, where it says God just turned them over to the lusts of their flesh and just let them have what they thought they wanted. Those are the most terrifying verses you can find in all the Bible. Let fire and brimstone come if it saves me from years on end of more foolishness and darkness and death separated from God, I'll take the the summary and the cessation of life any day over a wretched, hollow existence set aside and and far off from the love and the mercy, the beauty and the relationship that I was created for. I don't want to be a fish trying to make it on land. (laughs) I don't want to be an eagle that's going to be a pond dweller. That's a miserable existence. It's not what you were made for. And nobody at your work was made for that. Nobody at your school was made for that. Nobody in your family was made for that. And so if they don't know the Lord, friend, let your heart be broken for the walking death that they live in, for the shell and the hollow existence that they live in. We need to, when we're dealing with sin, we need to not be scared that God's gonna cause us to, our car to wrap around a telephone pole as a form of judgment or he's gonna send fire and brimstone. that's, That's not the worst thing that could happen, man. The worst thing that could happen is that he quits messing with you. That he just turns you over to your sin and to your lust. That what happens later on in in the New Testament talks about your conscience being seared as with an iron to the point where you don't even feel conviction anymore. You just get to the point where it's fine. You're not even scared to disregard the benevolent warnings that God's given you in his word. That is the worst thing that can happen. And we need to see that. We need to understand there's a lot of people living that way. But we also need to understand that because of Jesus, because of the power of his gospel, No matter how darkened someone has gotten their understanding, no matter how hopeless even they believe they are, there is always hope because of Jesus. And friends, we are supposed to be the arbiters, the ambassadors, the the carriers of that hope to the world. And so we cannot afford to be wrapped up in our own business, offering our half-hearted offerings, doing our own thing. We need to understand that we are called to bring the hope of the gospel to as many people as possible. And we need to care about it. And if if you're sitting there going, I don't know if I care, then friend, I'm I'm pleading with you to go to God and to ask him to help you to care. Ask him to cultivate in you a desire that rises above all your other desires for God to be glorified and for every single person possible to come out of darkness and slavery into light and freedom because they're in relationship with Jesus. Praise God. May we be a people who give sacrificially and frequently and intentionally in worship to our worthy God. May we be a people who push back against the lie of comparison, knowing that Jesus has declared we are loved and wanted by hanging on the cross for us. And may we go from here, passionately declaring that though we all deserve Cain's fate, there is hope for all because of the great and glorious gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the first half of Genesis 4. Thank you, Lord, though it is a tragic set of verses, highlighting a tragic set of circumstances. Thank you, Lord, there is so much wisdom in there for us. Lord, help us. We have all taken Cain's route before And we are tempted oftentimes to do it now. God, help us to avoid. Help us to avoid the sinful tendencies. To throw back in your face our own frailties and our own failures. God, may we embrace wholeheartedly the chance you gave Cain. You came to Cain knowing what he did. You came asking questions. You came opening the door for him to confess and repent. You came still trying to deal with him in a loving, merciful way. And yet he kicked against the goads. He kept pushing you. He kept rejecting that love and mercy. God, I thank you that even though we have all done that, at least as many times as Cain, that your word tells us that you are not slow as some count slowness, but you are patient, willing that none should perish, that you are, you are long-suffering, and that you will continue, Lord, to work in us and to deal with us. Thank you, Lord. May we never, ever come even close to the place where you would turn us over to our lusts, where you would quit coming after us, pursuing us. God, those are the scariest verses we can think of. Lord, shake us if any of us are near that. Shake us if any of us have ignored the prompting of your Holy Spirit enough that we're even close to our conscience being seared. Shake us if any of us have gotten close to the point where we would respond to you with some kind of insolent answer like, am I my brother's keeper? Lord, humble us, break us. Lord, please cultivate in us A deep belief that the worst possible existence is an existence without you. And God, may we believe that for ourselves. May that change the way we pursue and what we prioritize. But God, may it also change the way we see other people. Lord, help us never be so foolish as to covet what some unbeliever has. What maybe looks like freedom or what looks like power or wealth. God, may we truly believe down to the deepest fiber of our being that what we were made for is the only true way to find purpose and joy. Any of the things that we're looking for and what we were made for was you. We were made to be near you. We were made to be with you. We were made to be a part of what you're doing in the earth. So God, please help us. We fall short of all of these things we're asking for constantly. And we thank you, Lord, that You've said that by grace and by the power of your Spirit, you'll help us to accomplish these things that we we acknowledge, Lord. We fully acknowledge we are not able to do any of this. But we also greatly rejoice in the fact that you'll do it through us, and you'll do it in us, and you'll do it for us. We trust you, dear Master, and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church